John chapter 13, we're going to read the first 17 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around His waist. Then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to Him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only feet, my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but... Not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are many occupations that I'm very glad that exist. And I'm very glad that other people do those things. Occupations like nurse, like physician, like barber, like massage therapist, like physical therapist, like manicurist, like pedicurist. All of these are useful occupations. But... They would not be the occupations I would be drawn to because they all involve touching other people's bodies and particularly parts of people's bodies that are not in order. And their job is to help get those parts of the body back into some sort of order, whether it's fixing the hair or cleaning the teeth or adjusting a joint or whatever it might be. But they're touching other people's bodies to try to help those people's bodies get well. Now, as I said, I'm glad that other people do that. Not the kind of jobs I would be drawn to. Um, Jesus, in this text, he's turned away from the world. We saw that last week. He turned away from the world, and now from here on out, he is going to be focusing on his disciples. And in this incident, which is probably a fairly well-known incident in the life of Jesus... He touches other people's bodies. He touches his disciples' bodies. He touches a dirty part 
of his disciples' bodies, and by so doing, he has three lessons for them and three lessons for us. Now, we have to intuit these lessons because he doesn't explain explicitly any of these three lessons. But he takes this action and then he looks at three different facets of it. And here we see that in response to what he does, he tells us how that we should live our lives. Now, in verse 1, we find out that they are in the Passover season again. And this is the third mention of the Passover. So this is the third mention of the Passover in the Gospel of John. So we have at least two years or something more than two years contemplated in this Gospel. And it says here, though, that this is before the feast of the Passover. Now, uh, many people think that this meal that's described here was the Passover meal. But however that might be, it says that Jesus knew that His hour had come. We saw that in chapter 12, didn't, didn't we? After, after 11 chapters of His hour had not yet come, His hour had not yet come, His hour had not yet come, finally Jesus said, the, My hour has come to be glorified. And then He described a grain of wheat falling to the ground and dying to produce much fruit. And he knew his hour had come. And here it's more explicit. Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. So they were. he knew that he was to depart out of the world, return to the Father who sent him. In other words, he knew he was about to die. And it says here, that he loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. By the way, we're going to see this expression or these two expressions throughout these next chapters, his own and the world. So these are two different, two different categories. And he has just turned away from the world, and now he is turning to his own. And we have seen throughout the Gospel of John that the world usually means the rebel, rebellious humanity arrayed against God. So he's turning away from rebellious humanity to focus on his disciples, and it says that he has taken his own out of that category of rebellious humanity. So we're going to see this distinction. There is the world, and it said from the beginning, for God so loved the world, so he's already been expressing for these 12 chapters his love for the world, and now he is going to focus on his own, those whom he has called out of the world. But it says here that his own, he loved them to the end. Now this expression, to the end, could mean one of two things. It could mean to the uttermost, to the max, as we might say. Or it could mean he loved them all the way to his own end. That is, all the way to his death. Now, which is it? Well, if we were picking up on John, John loves to use these sort of double meanings. And it's often hard for us to decide, and John may not be forcing us to decide. He loved his own to the maximum, and what was that maximum? It was his own end. He loved them to the end of his own life. And then verse 2. It says, During supper, and then there is this ominous parenthetical statement, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And then the sentence goes on. Now, we'll see more of this next week. There, There is some reference to his betrayal here, a couple references, but we'll see 
that next week in the next section, it focuses more on Judas's betrayal. But we see here that Judas was willing and it was also at the instigation of the enemy of the devil. But it says Jesus, verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands. The Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God. So the Father had put everything into His hands and He knew that He had come from God and He was going back to God. Once again, we have this unusual combination and we've seen this throughout the Gospel of John. We saw this uh, in, the, in the triumphal entry. He says, Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies. And so we have this juxtaposition of glory and death. And we have this once again. It says, this chapter starts by saying, And Jesus knew that it was His, his hour to, to leave. That is, his, his hour to die. And then it says... And Jesus, knowing that it was His hour to leave and that the Father had given all things into His hands. How do we put these two things together? How is it that, that by dying, Jesus is going to have all things? But those are not contradictory. That's what the Gospel is saying. It is precisely by His dying that Jesus receives all things from the Father. But this statement sets up this action He's about to perform. And this statement makes the, the action he's about to perform even more remarkable. Because it says, Jesus knew that he had everything. Let me ask you, what would you do? How would your life change if you all of a sudden had everything? Everything. I hope you're not playing the lottery, but, but if you were... And all of a sudden you won the lottery? How would your lifestyle change? What would you do differently? Or if, if you get a letter from, I don't know, Bill Gates' attorney after Bill Gates passes away and, and you learn that you're the sole heir of everything that Bill and Melinda have or something like that. What if, what if all of a sudden you had everything? What would you do? How would your life change? What, what actions would you take? Well, Jesus, once He knew He had all things, it says He rose from the table, and probably what they were doing, at some, some meals they sat on chairs like we do, at other meals they had a low table, they leaned on their left elbow, and they ate with their right hands, and their feet were extended out from the table. That's probably what was going on here. And it says, he rose from the table. And usually in the Gospel of John, this word rise refers to the resurrection. And John may be playing a little bit with that word here. But it says he has everything. And so what does he do? He rises up. Well, who wouldn't if they had everything? Who wouldn't, who wouldn't rise up? That's what he does. It says he rose from supper, verse 4. But then it says he laid aside his outer garments, probably meaning he stripped to his undergarments. And then he took a towel, and it was a long towel, and he was able to wrap himself with the towel and then tie it around his waist and still have a long part of the towel to be useful. 
And then he took a basin of water, and he went around and he began to wash the disciples' feet and dry their feet with a towel. The first thing he did, he dressed like a slave. This is how a slave would have been dressed, with only undergarments and then wrapped with a towel. And then he went to those feet that were probably sticking out around the table, and he went one by one and began to wash their feet and to dry their feet with this towel with which he was dressed. Now, there were dusty roads uh, at the time. They didn't have pavement like we do. And also, human filth, like in many parts of the world to this day, human filth was often deposited in the streets. And so the streets were very dirty places. And they often didn't have closed-toed shoes either. And so when you would get to a house, oftentimes when we get to a house, we, we say, oh, could I wash my hands? And of course, with this virus, they're telling us to do what? Wash your hands. But one of the first things you would do upon entering a house would be to take off your sandals and to wash your feet. And the, the host, the owner of the house, if he was being courteous, would provide a basin for you to wash your feet. And if that man had Gentile slaves, slaves who were not Jewish, it's possible that he would command his Gentile slaves to help you wash your feet. But it was beneath, if you had Jewish slaves who had fallen on hard times and were trying to work themselves back into a financially viable place and they had sold themselves into slavery temporarily, which was a provision of the Old Testament, then if you had Jewish slaves, you, you wouldn't ask them to do that because that was too lowly a task for a Jewish slave. And also, disciples of teachers, of rabbis, they were required to perform menial tasks for their masters. And so the, the, the rabbi, the master, could give them menial tasks to do, and they were expected to do those tasks. But Jewish writings tell us they couldn't require them to wash their feet because that was just too lowly. That was just too demeaning. That was just too disgusting a job to require of a Jewish slave or to require of a disciple. But Jesus, who knew that he had everything, what he did was he took a position that was lower than the lowest slave. And he washed his disciples' feet. Now you can imagine how the disciples would have felt about this. And it looks like they were in stunned silence because this was just so inappropriate. This was so socially awkward to to interrupt the meal, to do something so inappropriate. But true to what we know of Peter, he was the one to to break the silence and to speak up and to raise an objection in verse 6. And he raises this objection in a very striking way. Our translation says, Lord, do you wash my feet? But actually, it was even stronger than that. He said, Lord, you 
my feet wash? He's shocked. And he realizes that this just should not happen in his own mind. Now, Jesus explained that they would understand later. And here we get to the first meaning of Jesus' actions. Look at verse 7. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Now that's not much of an explanation in the moment, is it? Because it doesn't say when they would understand. It doesn't say what they would understand. But as we read the rest of the story, we can put two and two together and realize that after Jesus died, that they could understand what He was doing. That after He died, and by His death, paid for their sins, and washed them of their sins, they would understand that He was prefiguring His death by doing something degrading and demeaning to wash their feet. And pointing to the fact that He was about to do something even more disgusting and degrading and demeaning and humiliating by dying on a cross to pay for their sins. That's the first meaning of this. Well, Peter, not content with Jesus' explanation, he was very adamant that Jesus was not going to wash his feet. And so he says in verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And this is also very strong. Never, ever will you wash my feet. So Peter is still dictating the terms here to the Master. It, it looks like an act of humility on Peter's part, but actually he's the one taking control and telling Jesus what he will and will not do. But Jesus very patiently responds to Peter and says to him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And this reinforces this first meaning, doesn't it? Because it's certainly not the case that if, if we don't have our feet washed by Jesus, then we have no part of Him, because He, only, he did that only for a few. So He's pointing to the, the meaning. And He's saying, if, if you do not let Me wash you with My blood, by My death on the cross, by My dying for you, if you do not let me take away your sins by my demeaning, degrading action on the cross, then you have no part with me. Now, this is in two senses. And what it seems to be in American evangelicalism is that we get one of those senses. When we we look at the, the New Testament teaching on being washed from our sins, it has two aspects. One aspect is the guilt of our sins. And and the solution to guilt is to be pardoned. And that's the part that we tend to understand. So 
If, if we are not pardoned by God because of the death of Jesus Christ, then we have no part in Christ and, and we still have our sins before God. But the New Testament also says that we are to be washed of the contamination of our sins. That is to say, we are to be brought out of our sins. We are no longer to live in our sins. We are no longer to be dominated by our sins. And that's the part that we have more trouble getting. But we should not separate these two, because Jesus is saying, if you do not let me wash you, take away your guilt, and take away the contamination in your lives, then you have no part with me. That was true for them. That's true for us. That is true for everyone. If we want to have a part with Jesus, we need to be washed by Jesus. And He provides that washing through His death And we receive that washing by believing in Him. Now that's the first meaning. But the rest of the conversation continues, and Peter still wants to dictate the terms. In verse 9, Peter says, well, if that's the case, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And once again, this looks like an exuberant affirmation of what Jesus is saying, and in one sense it is. And yet, once again, Peter is dictating the terms, telling Jesus what he should do. And Jesus, still very patiently, he says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet. And they would have bathed. They would have bathed before going to a meal, But then their feet got dirty along the way. And so arriving at the meal, they didn't need to bathe again. And so Jesus takes his actions and he shows another facet of these actions. But he doesn't explain them here. We have to try to put these things together. What's he saying here? He's referring to a, a general cleansing that is sufficient to make one clean. And then he's saying, but there are smaller washings along the way that are still necessary. And this is pointing to the fact that when we have faith in Christ, we are cleansed of our sins once and for all. But it seems to be indicating what we find in the rest of Scripture, that we still need washings. Why? Because we still dirty ourselves with our sins. And so there is a need for these these constant washings, even though before God we have been cleansed. If you turn over and look at John chapter 15, uh, verse 3, we find this expression once again and the only other time. It says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So believe in the word of Jesus, the word of the cross, and you will be clean before God. And yet, you will dirty yourselves along the way. And so there is a need for these periodic washings as well. As we continue to do what we do in our service today, and I hope you're doing in your lives constantly, and confessing and recognizing our sins, and asking to be washed from those as well. So that's the second meaning. Now Jesus pronounced them clean, but here's another ominous expression in verse 10, Jesus said to them, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, plural, you all 
are clean, but not every one of you. And then the parenthetical statement, verse 11, For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And then Jesus finished washing their feet. And he took off the towel. He put his outer garments on again in verse 12. And he resumed his place around the table. And then he asked them if they understood. Do you understand what I have done to you? And then he explained. And he pointed out something of which they were already painfully aware. That there was a great difference of status between him and them. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. And Lord has a range of meanings between a polite sir and Lord meaning master of the universe, God himself. And it has those overtones here. You call me teacher and master, Lord. And he says, and you're right. You're right. There is a difference between us. There is a status difference between us. I am master. I am Lord. I am teacher. But then he gives us one of these arguments that are are quite common in Jesus' teaching and particularly in the Gospel of John. It's, It's an argument that goes, how much more? How much more? So he says in verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So here we have the third lesson of this this foot washing. And the third lesson is this. If Jesus washed His disciples' feet doing something demeaning, something lowly, something degrading, something that required a great humiliation and a great condescension on His part by the greater serving the lesser, how much more should we, who are, in spite of the the differences that we like to construct among ourselves in our societies, We who are on the same level, how much more should we be willing to do lowly, simple, demeaning, degrading tasks for one another? You see, because the the distance that Jesus had to humble Himself was phenomenally great, and the distance that you and I need to humble ourselves in order to wash each other's feet, is as nothing in comparison. Because we are on the same level. Now, if we fail to do that... Oh, by the way, Christians cannot take away each other's sins, although we can help each other to repent of our sins. We can't take away our sins like Jesus can, but we can serve each other like Jesus served us in a lowly way. And verse 16 has a, an important warning here if we fail to do this. Verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger 
greater than the one who sent him. So, the servant is not greater than the master. The master is greater than the servant. The sent one is not greater than the sender. The sender is greater than the sent one. Why does that show up here? Because if we fail to serve each other, we are saying that we servants are greater than the master. We sent ones are greater than the one who sent us. Why? Because what did the master do? The master washed the servant's feet. And we're saying we are above that. The master could do that, but we're above him. And that too task is too demeaning for us. Do you see how serious this is? If we fail to do these simple things for one another, then we are saying that we are above the master, above the one who sends. And then he ends with this blessing, but it's a conditional blessing. And there are a couple different words that cover our word if. And these two words are used here in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And this is the conditional blessing. You're blessed if you do them. But we should probably translate it this way. This first one is not in doubt. This first if. Since you know these things, you are blessed if it is that you do them. So the first one is not in doubt. Jesus is saying, you know these things. I just showed you these things. I just told you these things. You know them. But you are not blessed just for knowing them. You are blessed if, and there's a question mark over this if, you are blessed if you do them. So what's the takeaway here from this third meaning? It's this. If you want to do great things for God, that's wonderful. The way you can pursue great things for God is by doing lowly things for others. You want to do great things for God? That's excellent. This is how you do it. By doing lowly things for others. That's a very hard lesson to learn, isn't it? And I have to admit, to my shame, that it's a lesson that I have to learn over and over And over. Because I have come into town more than once wanting to do great things for God. And God has to remind me that the way to do great things for Him is by doing lowly things for others. After four years in Mexico, Mexico City, where the ministry prospered, And grew sixfold in, in four years. We decided it was time to go to another city where we knew no one and where there were almost no evangelical churches and start from scratch and do great things in Guadalajara. And so we arrived in town and set up. And before I left Mexico City, I said to our church there, if you know anybody in Guadalajara, give me their name. 
uh, friend, enemy, uh, ex-spouse, uh, college roommate, whatever you have, any context you have, and I will contact them. Because, here's the subtext, I'm going to go in and do some great things, and you're going to help me do that. And so I started going through the list, calling these people, most of whom said, okay, yeah, I sort of remember that person, thank you for calling, and that was it. But one was named Margarita. Margarita was a college friend of our secretary in Mexico City. And our college, or our secretary said, my friend Margarita is in Guadalajara and she's having a hard time. She has cancer. Could you call her? So I called Margarita and she was one of the few that was interested in talking and in meeting us. So we met Margarita. Well, Margarita was having a hard time. She was racked with cancer. She didn't have much money, and so she was going to the public hospital, which often involved waiting and, and uh, uh, lining up with many others to, to get her chemotherapy treatments. And so the one thing Margarita needed was to get rides to the hospital. And so that's what she asked me to do. And Sandy was actually a lot busier than I was because she was educating our two daughters at home. And I didn't know anybody and I didn't have a whole lot to do. I was getting ready to do great things. But I wasn't very busy yet. And so what did Margarita need? She needed rides to the hospital. And so I would go and pick up Margarita and take her to the hospital across town while she got her chemotherapy treatments and wait for her or come back and pick her up. And then she'd need that again. And Margarita, her body was not well. And she was having trouble taking care of her body. So sometimes Margarita did not smell very good. And so I was taking her in my car and taking her to go get chemo and bringing her back home and doing that again. And then again, because she had chemo treatments quite often. And then some more, and I have to say that I was not particularly happy about my calling at that point. You see, I was, I was coming into town to do great things, not, not to be somebody's chauffeur, to be taking them back and forth to get chemotherapy treatments. But I got to spend a lot of time with Margarita in the car, And so I started talking to Margarita about Jesus as well. And she knew she was going to die. And maybe sooner rather than later. And so Margarita was very interested in hearing about Jesus and somebody who died for her sins and could give her eternal life. And and then I would pray for Margarita and I would read the scripture to Margarita, but all the while, not so happy with having to to take her whenever she would call and pick her up whenever she need picked up. But I kept taking her and picking her up and talking to her about Jesus and reading the Scripture to her and praying for Margarita. And as her health got worse and worse, her faith in Jesus became more and more evident until one day we got a call that told us that Margarita had died. The first convert in Guadalajara in our ministry. And she had died. Now, 
Many great things happened after that. Churches got started, Christian school, seminary classes, elders and pastors raised up and ordained, children's home that we got to support. I got to start traveling around Latin America as a conference speaker. And if you look at these sort of things, they would look like big things, great things. But I have to say that I would not be surprised that if someday when the records are reviewed, I would not be surprised to find out that the greatest thing I did in Guadalajara was give rides to Margarita. And tell Margarita about a Savior who is God Himself, who became one of us, and stooped so low as to die on a cross to wash us from our sins. Let's pray. Our God, we are so great at coming up with distinctions among ourselves to make ourselves feel superior to others and above certain tasks that disgust us. We are shocked when we look at Jesus and find that He was willing to wash His disciples' feet and then even more shocked when we find that that was pointing to something even more demeaning and more degrading. It was dying on a cross to wash us of our sins. Oh God, cleanse us from our our arrogance, our haughtiness, and enable us to follow the Master in washing one another's feet. Lord, we want to do great things for You. First, we need to be washed by You. And then we need to recalibrate what a great thing looks like. And we pray for Your washing. We pray for Your constant cleansing. And we pray that You would enable us not only to tell people about Jesus, but to show them what it looks like for a Savior to serve His people by dying. That we would be able to live in the footsteps of that Savior and so serve the way Jesus served. That others might know Him and that our brothers and sisters might seek Him in our service to them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.